morning for our scripture reading to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We have here in 1 Corinthians the classic passage on the resurrection. And we read the first 18, or we'll read the first verses of the chapter. We won't read the entire chapter as we look at especially verses 4 through 8. We hear God's inspired word. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. After that he was seen of above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. After that he was seen of James, then of all the apostles, and last of all he was seen of me, also as one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles, and am not meet to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace, which was bestowed upon me, was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. Therefore, whether it were I or they, so we preach, and so ye believed. Now if Christ be preached, that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen? And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain. Ye are yet in your sins. Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the firstfruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ at his coming. Then cometh the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. For he hath put all things under his feet. But when he saith all things are put under him, it is manifest he is accepted which did put all things under him. And when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself 
be subject unto him that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. We read that far. May God bless the reading of his word. We take as our text verses 4 through 8, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, and that he was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. After that he was seen of above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. After that he was seen of James, then of all the apostles, and last of all, he was seen of me also as one born out of due season, due time. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, Christ's resurrection is one of the great works in our redemption. Without the resurrection, even the cross would be incomplete. We read here in verse 17, And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, ye are yet in your sins. Now we ask ourselves this question this morning, of what practical benefit is the resurrection in your and my lives? We all desire joy. We want to be happy. We desire the fullness of what it means to be joyful. We want a happiness that's not just temporary. We want a happiness that transcends all the trials of this life, a joy that will endure to all eternity. Beloved, the resurrection provides us with that unspeakable joy. God gives to us a joy that cannot be contained. A joy that will endure throughout all the challenges, all the trials of this life. A joy that extends beyond death itself to everlasting life. That's the wonder, the marvel of this work of Jehovah God. The resurrection teaches us that God is the God of our salvation. And that he is able and willing to save us from the deepest woes and to bring us into the highest bliss. The doctrine of the resurrection gives us that assurance and gives us that joy. Acts 1 verse 3 states, To whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. During those forty days that Jesus appeared to his disciples between his resurrection and his ascension, especially five things Jesus focused on teaching, five things that are necessary for us to know that joy, that lasting joy. First of all, he was teaching that he had a new body and that his new body was really new and that it was that which was indestructible. It could not be destroyed. Secondly, he was teaching that his death for sinners had been validated. That death was certain and that death had accomplished the purpose for which God had ordained. He was raised for our justification. Thirdly, that his teachings were true. The resurrection was a confirmation that everything Jesus taught was true. Fourth, that his fellowship with his disciples was permanent. It would not be broken. That he enjoyed a fellowship and communion with his disciples that would endure to all eternity. And it would be such because of the pouring out of his spirit and the preservation 
of his church. Finally, that his cause would triumph through the whole world. The cause of Jesus Christ would be that which would triumph and would cause his saints out of the whole of the world to be gathered and brought to the joy and wonder of that salvation. We look at this morning the meaning of the resurrection, noting the resurrection, the controversy surrounding it, and the comfort that is ours. And that he was buried and that he rose again on the third day, we read here in verse 4. The apostle comes to the close here of the book of 1 Corinthians and he addresses one of the most important doctrines of the Christian faith. Now one would ask, why did the apostle wait till the end of the book to address this crucial topic of the resurrection? As Paul addresses the church at Corinth, his credibility was at stake. His authority was at stake. And so at first Paul deals with his authority as an apostle. He deals with his love for them and his conviction to assist them. He has to bring strong admonitions to them. And finally, he feels it important to address sharply this important subject wherein they needed correction. It's important that the people realize that this doctrine of the resurrection would be crucial for their joy and for the hope of their salvation. And Paul refers to it even in verse 1 as the gospel. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel that I preached unto you. That gospel is the truth of the resurrection. This is not a topic that has minimal impact on our salvation. This is a doctrine that stands at the heart of our salvation. And it stands at the heart of all preaching. As the apostles went out preaching, they preached Christ crucified and risen again. This doctrine is necessary if we're to know joy, the fullness of joy, now and to all eternity. And Paul wanted the church at Corinth then to be very clear on this doctrine. He wanted them to be clear with regard to what it was that he taught them with regard to the resurrection. And he makes clear to them, I did not bring my own gospel. I did not bring my own instruction on this point. What I brought you is that which had been entrusted to me from God. The apostle is establishing the important truth that as a minister of the gospel, he's but a herald. And a herald is one who doesn't bring his own word, but brings the word of the king. And Paul is saying now, the word that I brought you is the word of the king. This is what was entrusted me by God and what I then was compelled to bring. And so he comes in order to make known powerfully and clearly the doctrine of the resurrection. This is what I myself witnessed as he confesses. And last of all, he was seen of me. I know he lives because I saw him and because he appeared to me personally. What is the significance of the resurrection? As the apostle delves into this truth and this doctrine, he establishes the fact that the death of Jesus accomplished deliverance from sin and death. Jesus' death was payment for sin. And the resurrection of Jesus was the testimony that his death had accomplished the purpose for which God sent him. 
when the Bible mentions salvation through the death of Jesus Christ, that concept is impossible to understand apart from the resurrection. The resurrection was the testimony that his death satisfied, that God was pleased with his sacrifice, and that therefore he had accomplished the work for which he came. We know that Jesus, in order to be raised from the dead, had to be buried. To be buried is to be placed in a grave where the earth swallows one up and our bodies begin their return to dust. To be buried is humiliating. Jesus' body went the way of all flesh. His dead body was raised again on the third day. He was in the grave for parts of Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And although there's much dispute over how that comprises three days, three nights, we trust God's word to be true, to be without error. Now there's no dispute among the four gospel narratives as to the historicity of the resurrection. This is a true historical event. It was on the first day of the week. Everyone has agreed on that. Angels appeared to testify of this wonder. All of the gospel accounts, again, agree on that. There were men present who were identified as angels. The wonder of the grave clothes testified that a miracle had taken place. The grave clothes still were intact, but they were hollow. There was no body found within them. And it would have been impossible for someone to separate the body from the grave clothes of their own. Jesus himself appeared to many different people during that 40-day time period. The apostle here references above 500 brethren at once. So Jesus appeared to hundreds and hundreds of individuals who could testify of the fact that Jesus was alive. Paul writes 1 Corinthians 15 as though it's a legal document. It's as though Paul here is giving to the court an account before a judge of the validity of the resurrection from the dead. And he lays out all of the evidence, stating if the resurrection did not happen, we are false witnesses. And he states specific individuals. He says, you can subpoena these individuals. They are eyewitnesses of the wonder that took place. If the court has any question, call in over 500 eyewitnesses who will testify to the fact that Jesus is alive. He rose from the dead. And Paul then testifies, and even I saw him. People ate with him. People touched him. People talked with him. As Luke writes the book of Acts, similarly, Luke lays out very clearly a book of facts. Luke isn't writing a book of theories. He's writing a book of facts. Not conjectures, but that which actually happened. And he makes that repeatedly clear. These are the facts. These are the indisputable facts that serve as the foundation, the ground of our salvation. And Luke's careful presentation in his gospel narrative, laying out the precise facts that took place, demonstrates this is credible The facts, the evidence, is that which cannot be overturned. It's referred to as infallible proofs. That is, proofs 
that cannot be in any way denied. The apostle here says, according to the scriptures. What greater testimony do we need? We have the Bible. And according to the scriptures, we have evidence and proof that Jesus rose from the dead. You can't get around the fact that the grave was empty and that the grave clothes were lying in the grave as they had been with the napkin removed from the face. There are different attempts, different theories with regard to what happened to Jesus. One theory tries to postulate that Jesus' body was removed by enemies who stole it. Another says the disciples came by night and took the body. The third, God raised him from the dead. We know that those first two options have tremendous problems. What about again the grave clothes? What about the testimony of the angels? He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. If the enemies took the body, why did they not reveal it? The disciples were talking about the fact that he rose from the dead. If enemies had taken his body, this was one way they could silence once and forever the message of the resurrection. They could say, look, we've got the body. It's right here. We took it. There's no resurrection here. What a powerful tool that would have been. But no, they didn't have the body. Jesus had been raised from the dead. The disciples were discouraged. They were in no position to think of something like stealing the body. They had helped bury the body. They were not in a position to try to build a theology around an empty tomb. That's no theology. That's no hope. There's no joy to be found in that. Some try to suggest that Jesus merely passed out on the cross. He really wasn't dead. And so that when his body was removed then by the soldiers and Joseph of Arimathea put him in the grave, he just revived and came alive. Again, what foolishness. And to dismiss then the sword in his side, to dismiss the grave clothes, to dismiss the testimony of the angel, to imply that Joseph of Arimathea was not able to recognize a corpse, that he would have buried a man alive? How thrilled would not Joseph of Arimathea had been to find that he was still alive? And they would have done everything they could to try to nurse him to hell. But the devil is clever. And the devil sends various lies in order to try to get men to believe that which is a lie. The devil wants to rob Christians of joy, to rob us of hope. And a lie that more recently is heard is that the mode of the resurrection is much less important than the meaning of the resurrection. And there gets into all kinds of philosophical arguments then having to do with the fact that what's important is what you think, what you believe in your own heart. Now we need to understand the controversy that occurred here in Corinth. In Corinth, within the church, there were those who did not believe in the resurrection. Now imagine a Christian church that didn't believe in the doctrine of the resurrection. A Christian church that said with regard to salvation's greatest wonder, uh, we're not sure about this. 
We don't think we believe that Jesus raised from the dead. That's what the apostle here is addressing in 1 Corinthians 15. Throughout history, despite the clear, unmistakable proofs and all the agreement among the Gospels, there have been repeated attempts to undermine the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And again, the devil is behind this, and such attempts are not new, as is evident here. The apostle faced it in Corinth. In this church in Corinth, the unique twist that was taking place in Corinth was this. If pressed, they would admit Jesus arose from the dead, but they would not make a connection between Jesus' resurrection and their own resurrection that would take place at the end of the world. So that while some would admit, yeah, we believe that Jesus may have rose from the dead, they didn't see it impacting their faith, their hope, or their own practical lives. And so the apostle makes emphatic the connection between Jesus' resurrection and our joy and our hope. Salvation is through Jesus Christ alone. And the apostles rightly made that the focus of their preaching. They preached Christ crucified and risen again. They believed Jesus not only died for the sins of his people, but they preached he rose from the dead. He broke out of the grave and testified by that wonder, victory over sin and death and hell. A dead Christ can't save the church. Today we come across many different attempts by professing Christians to deny the resurrection. And as I stated, some take a metaphorical approach. They argue in very, we would think, strange arguments, but have to do with more philosophical. And they would say, you know, whether Jesus actually physically arose from the dead isn't so important. What's important is how we feel, how it impacts the lives of his followers. Whether or not his body actually is still laying in a grave smoldering under the dust of the ground. That doesn't really matter. But what's important is what does it mean for you? What does it mean for your life? That's the big issue. What does it mean for the world? And they try to argue then in terms that are very unattached from the historical wonder. Now if we ask ourselves, what is a metaphorical interpretation of the scriptures? And again, increasingly critics are coming with that kind of an idea. They say the Bible's just a book of stories. And the Bible as a book of stories deals not with actual history, but just with parables, with things that are made up. And so they would say then that nothing really that's laid out in the Bible is actually historically real. But it's set there to make us think and to make us engage with it so that we can then be touched by our own feelings and that we can then live in a manner that reflects more fully that teaching and so it doesn't really matter then if Jesus was a real historical figure it doesn't really matter um, with regard to the historical events what's important more is our feelings and how we interpret them what matters is meaning they would even insist that resurrection really means a transformation from a world of injustice a world of impurity a world of violence to something that involves justice, something that involves peace, something that involves purity, that involves holiness. And so they separate then the resurrection from sin, from atonement, and merely it becomes a social gospel. 
the mode, whether or not the resurrection is real or fiction, isn't really what matters. What matters is more the meaning and the significance in one's life. If you haven't already, some of you college students will come across professors who talk along that way. Confusing, makes our minds spin. Novel ideas are set forth and we try to understand where are they coming from? What do they mean? It's a clever way not only to get around the issue of an empty tomb, but a clever way also to deny the historicity of the Bible. And we need to beware of such lies. How can we respond to that? The Bible is the infallible, inspired Word of God. We believe that the Bible is accurate, that it is historically the truth, that the resurrection of Jesus Christ stands at the heart, the center of all the teaching of the Bible, and that as God's Word, the Bible clearly teaches the resurrection happened in a real, physical, factual manner. And God works faith in our hearts so that we lay hold upon that which from an earthly perspective would be impossible. That Jesus was raised from the dead. If there was no physical resurrection on that Easter morning, then the credibility of the Bible is at stake. The Christian then loses his confidence in every aspect of the teaching of Scripture. If this central teaching is lost, then Christians become the biggest of fools for falling for a scam. And that's the point of the apostle now as he delves into this doctrine in 1 Corinthians 15. All the arguments of the apostle here come into play. No resurrection? That means there's no Christ. That means there's no gospel. That means there's no faith. That means a lie is sitting on the throne of truth. And salvation then is not possible. That means there's no joy. There's no happiness in life. We perish. Live for a time, then die, and we all perish. The dead remain dead. Christians then become the object of a pity that's turned to scorn. How naive! that they would fall for that scam and then a scorn. These fools, they fall for a lie. Their faith is built on fiction. And they don't even recognize the difference between facts and metaphors. Say the scoffers then. Beloved, the arguments of the resurrection are many. And by faith, we lay hold upon the wonder of that resurrection. God gives the gift of faith to his children. And that faith lays hold on the wonder that Jesus rose from the dead. That faith lays hold upon the fact that we have a Savior who lives. The one with whom we have to do is our living Savior. His covenant covers us. He is our God. We are His people. And what a glorious truth is ours. He paid the price for my sin. So that I will not die, but live. Now we ask ourselves, why isn't everyone convinced? Why was there doubt in the church at Corinth? Why today is there so much doubt, and even in Christian circles, questioning of the resurrection? Weighty evidence exists, and yet 
They refute it. Why do people not flock to him? Because they're deaf. They don't hear the truth. Because they're blind. They don't see things as they truly are. They wander about the swamp of doubt. And they will not and they cannot believe. Because we know the ultimate answer. God must give the gift of faith. Apart from faith, no one will believe in Jesus Christ. Remember the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Remember the rich man asked Lazarus to send Lazarus to his brothers. Or the rich man asked Abraham, he says, Abraham, send Lazarus to my brothers so that they can avoid this place of torment that I'm currently experiencing. The rich man was in hell. And Abraham answers, they have Moses and the prophets. That's enough. The rich man says, no, nay, Father Abraham, but if one went went unto them from the dead, they will repent. And Father Abraham has the last word in Luke 16. If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. Someone did rise from the dead. Moses and the prophets and the gospels and the epistles testified to that wonder. And yet, they won't believe. And they didn't believe. Many have heard the message. Although Jesus was raised from the dead to life in a miraculous manner, they will not, they cannot believe. Now most will give lip service to the Bible's teaching and they will go through the various rituals. But they don't have faith that can stand in the light of a day. Everyday practices seem to assume Jesus remains in the grave. In other words, they go through life as though their salvation depends on themselves. They go through life with no hope, no joy. On the cross, Jesus said, it is finished. Through the resurrection, God said, it is finished. The work has been accomplished. And God provided then many witnesses of that resurrection. And God above all works in us the faith by which we lay hold on this wonder. And we know the joy, the unspeakable joy of the resurrection. Paul here walks through some of those witnesses. In verse 5, he was seen of Cephas. Cephas is Peter. Of all those to whom Jesus would make himself known, to Peter, Peter is the one who denied Jesus three times. What a glorious testimony of the love of Jesus for sinners. Jesus was teaching that his body was real. It was new. He was passing through walls. He gave evidence of the fact that he had a new body now that could not be destroyed. Secondly, Jesus was teaching during this time period as he interacted with these people again that his death for sinners was true. It had accomplished the purpose for which God had sent him. The atonement. Thirdly, that his teaching was true. He had testified the fact that he would be raised again on the third day. Now here he was. He was alive. It confirmed all his miracles, all his teaching, that his teaching was true. Fourth, Jesus made emphatically clear that his relationship to his disciples was permanent. 
Though he would leave them, he would continue with them. His relationship with them could not be broken. And finally, that his cause would triumph through the world. Jesus made clear in those 40 days that the cause of Christianity and the cause of the wonder of the resurrection would be such that it would prevail and that the cause of Christ would be realized. The reason for this resurrection was especially to drive home the central message. This is the gospel of our salvation. And the resurrection teaches us beyond any doubt that Jesus died for the ungodly. The reference to ungodly there is humbling for us. It's a reference to God's elect, God's people. And what are they? They're ungodly. They're sinful. They have no good within them. Jesus did not die for those who were worthy. He did not die for those who were deserving. Jesus died for those who were ungodly. Almost every religion teaches a Savior for those who were worthy. Christianity teaches a Savior for the ungodly. And evidence that the resurrection proves that point is found in this. Salvation is all of God. It's not of man. Man could not do anything to save himself. Man could do nothing to make himself worthy. Salvation is all of God. Jehovah God alone raised Jesus from the dead. Jehovah God performed the wonder of life out of death. No matter wherever you turn, always there is before us the reality of death and hell. God's just. And God says the soul that sins, that soul must die. And that soul must suffer hell. We sin. We sin constantly. God is angry, the Bible says, with the wicked every single day. And his justice demands satisfaction. His holiness is a consuming fire. And God is always judging wicked men. And his verdict always is the same. Death. The soul that lives in sin, that soul must die. In his anger, in his holy wrath, he pursues wicked men. He strikes fear and terror in the souls and hearts of men. And there's no way out. There's only darkness. All human attempts are vain to escape. We only find judgment. There's only one way of escape, and that's through Jesus Christ and through the perfect work that he accomplished on Calvary. Is it possible that Jehovah God would justify the ungodly? From a human perspective, we would say, impossible. We've sinned. We must die. But now is Christ risen from the dead? In his resurrection, the testimony that Jehovah God received his sacrifice for those whom the Father had given him. The light in the midst of the darkness of our condemnation and our death, the light in the midst of our conscience with regard to sin and the horror of sin, is the wonder, he is risen. This is God's work. God raised him from the dead. And God raised him for our justification. And justification is the wonder by which God declares those who are ungodly to be righteous. Righteous in Jesus Christ alone. Beloved, this is the word of God to us this morning. And in this we find unspeakable joy and comfort. 
As we look at this passage here in 1 Corinthians 15, there's five things we can lay out that emphasize the unspeakable joy of the resurrection. First of all, verse 17, our sins are forgiven. If Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, ye are yet in your sins. Those sins are atoned for. Those sins are covered. Jesus Christ represented all those whom the Father had given him. He didn't stand alone as an individual. He stood as the head of the elect so that he represents us in life and in death. And he stood at Calvary and he was delivered. He gave himself for our transgressions. He bore the fullness of God's wrath for all of our sins. He accomplished atonement. And when Jesus cried, it is finished, God gave his own answer to that declaration by raising Jesus from the dead for our justification on account of, so that we might be declared righteous before God, so that we might be declared as those whose sins are covered, who live in the joy and wonder of that salvation. Now, beloved, this is an astounding mystery. God would not have raised him had he not fully satisfied for all the sins of his people. It's a mystery to which the apostle devotes the whole book of Romans, many other passages. God justifies. God declares righteous. God forgives the ungodly, the undeserving. They're the ones who are the objects of his love and of his mercy. Astounding wonder. This is what causes us to fall before the living God and to confess, I'm not worthy. Who am I? What am I to be made the recipient of this marvelous work? Beloved, this is the meaning of the doctrine of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And this is the highest source of joy and happiness for the, unrepent, for the repentant sinner. I know my sins are forgiven me in Jesus Christ. And I know that there is therefore now no condemnation in him. You want joy? Beloved, that is joy. That's a joy that no one can take from you. It's a joy that continues through the trials, through the struggles of life, that continues through death to everlasting bliss in heavenly glory. This is the joy of the resurrection. But secondly, our preaching of the word of God is absolute truth. Verse 14, and if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain. The opposite, Christ is risen. Therefore, our preaching is truth. We live in a day of relativism. A day when no one wants to say something is truth or something is lie. It said we can't really know what's right. We can't really know what's wrong. And therefore, they support the grossest of sins, homosexuality, all other sins. We just need to go with the flow of society, they say. Over against that, we have the blessed assurance that Christ is risen. And our preaching is based on the absolute truths that Christ taught. Those truths that Christ inspired by His Spirit men to write. And that is truth. And so with boldness, without compromise, we preach the Word of God as that which is the truth. 
Thirdly, our faith is well-grounded. Our faith is true. Verse 14, again, And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. Faith is based on truth. God works in us the gift of faith, and that faith lays hold on historical facts. It lays hold on the reality of God, of Jesus Christ, as a man who was born and lived in Nazareth, who died on a cross, who was raised again from the dead. Though the devil brings accusations, and though our own flesh even at times rises up over against the possibility, can I really be forgiven? Is it really possible that a sinner like me could be embraced by a holy and righteous God? God gives us on the basis of the work of Jesus Christ, the assurance, your faith is true. Your faith is sure. The world testifies against us. The world says you're sinners. You're sinful. The devil brings those accusations against us. We know our weakness. We don't try to defend ourselves. We don't try to say, but I'm godly. I'm one who's worthy of salvation. Overpowering all of the testimonies, all of our conscience, is the voice of the risen and exalted Savior, my Lord, justifying me, declaring me righteous in Him, clothing me with His everlasting righteousness, giving me the blessed assurance, it is finished. The work of reconciliation is accomplished. So that, beloved, we have light in the midst of darkness. We have hope in the midst of sin. We have righteousness in the midst of our ungodliness. And we have life in the midst of death. What a joy! As God works in us a faith, a faith that clings to Christ and knows and believes that in Him all is well. Fourth, the resurrection enables us to live then a meaningful, vibrant life. Verse 19, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we have, are of all men most miserable. That's the apostle's point. Now he flips it to the opposite of that. We have hope in Christ. And therefore, because we have hope in Christ, our life is not miserable. Our life is lived in meaning, in significance. Without the assurance of the resurrection, we would only experience continual death. There would be nothing for which to live. There would be nothing in which to hope. Now we know hope in Jesus Christ. Life has meaning. Life has significance. I now am able to live unto the glory and honor of God. And that's my calling. God created me to show forth His praise. And now that Jesus is risen from the dead, I seek the things that are above. Colossians 3 verse 1. Those things that are spiritual, those things that are heavenly, and I live unto him. This is the way in which the apostle ends this chapter. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain, in the Lord. In the midst of the temptation to think that 
Our work is meaningless. Our relationships don't really matter. All the labor that we pour into seeking to walk a godly life and to glorify God is without significance. We are reminded Christ is risen from the dead. And as the risen and exalted Savior, He's at work in and through us, glorifying His Father by the power of His Spirit. And finally, beloved, as a result then of the resurrection, we are able to live lives of joy and happiness to all eternity. That's verse 18. Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. Again, that's the result if there is no resurrection. But the opposite is true. The tabernacle of God is with me. God dwells with me. God has embraced me in love. He fellowships and communes with me. And that fellowship can never be broken. God will be with me and he will be my God. He will wipe away all my tears. He will make it so that all the former things are passed away and all things will be made new. What a glorious hope is mine in Jesus Christ. I think of Revelation 5 verse 9. Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. For thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. And then again in verse 12, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. That's the glorious hope that we have as God's children. Our life has significance. Our lives have joy. And we live then in the knowledge and wonder of that unspeakable joy. Taking again heed to verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, we thank thee for the gift of faith. We thank thee for the wonder by which thou dost move us to unspeakable joy, believing that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, believing that thou art the one working all things together for our good, believing that we have no reason for fear in the face of death because we have one in heaven preparing for us a place in order that he might take us to be with him to all eternity. Cause that we might live in the joy and the hope that is ours in Christ. This we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.